Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Hey listeners, we're so excited to be back for the second half of our very first season of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. A couple of quick notes before we jump in today's episode. We're running up on the last couple of days to register for the ASCA annual conference at the early bird rate. Our rates are going up next week, so you want to make sure you get that savings in and register now. For those of you who are coming to the conference, I'm looking forward to seeing you all and to be featuring our keynote speaker, Tim Wise, and all also, you know, just in general, looking forward to that collegiality and that connection in Jacksonville. So I hope to see you there. Today's episode features David Pei and Judy Lee, both from NYU Shanghai, and we're going to be discussing Chinese higher education and student conduct. David is the Associate Dean of Students at NYU Shanghai and oversees the student life, health and wellness, and career development centers. He moved across the globe in 2012 after eight years at the NYU campus in New York to set up the operations for the Shanghai campus. Born and raised in Los Angeles, David is attracted to urban cities and loves to travel and eat during his free time. He graduated from UCLA with a BA in Chinese, an MA in Higher Education Administration from NYU, and is currently completing the Organizational Change and Leadership EDD program at USC. Judy Lee serves as the Assistant Dean of Students at NYU Shanghai with oversight of new student programs. Judy Lee serves as the Assistant Dean of Students at NYU Shanghai with oversight of new student programs, diversity programs, student involvement, residential life, and student mobility. She also makes sure Chinese national students comply with the specific legal requirements for their personal dossier, CPC membership, youth league, and military training. Before her joining NYU Shanghai in 2011, Judy received a master's degree in political education from East China Normal University and spent the last four years working at ECNU in Shanghai before joining the NYU Shanghai team. Welcome to the podcast, David Pei and Judy Lee, both from NYU Shanghai. David Pei is the Associate Dean of Students, and Judy Lee is the Director for Student Resource, as well as the Official Liaison for Students for Title IX Manners at NYU Shanghai. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the intersection between NYU Shanghai and the Chinese Ministry of Education and the U.S. Department of Education is a really fascinating context. I want to share some quick facts about the campus. Um, We have about 1,000 students that are matriculated at any one given time, as well as about 150 to 200 study abroad students that are coming from other places around the world. Other interesting things are we admit 50% Chinese nationals to 50% other internationals uh, for every class, and the freshman year, students are required to live one-to-one, and so we create kind of an immediate intercultural context upon landing. So I'm wondering if, if the two of you could talk a little bit about how you got here. So what are your journeys into NYU Shanghai? 
Yeah, so before I came here, I was the staff at ECNU, so which is the East China Normal University, so who is the partner to NYU when build NYU Shanghai, this brand new campus. Uh, so my role at ECNU was student life advisor, so because the student life structure are very different from the American university. Uh, so in Chinese university, so most of the student life staff, they were at the college level. Also, we have certain offices in university level, but they have very, very few people. Um, so, and as a student life advisor, so we were bonded with a certain number of students. Um, so we are not specializing on a certain area at student affairs, but we are kind of generalist to provide all kinds of support to the certain group of students, like from the housing to the student involvement to the uh, credit uh, development or even like counseling or like sometimes we did have some role as wellness counselor to offer wellness support. Yeah. But you would stay with the same class from the moment yeah. they enter the door to the moment they graduate. Yes. So from the freshman year, uh, we will work together with the same group students until when they graduate. So the benefit is you will be super, super familiar with each of a student like who you're working for. Um, but the disadvantage is you cannot go deeper for a special area because Usually, it's you're working for like between 100 and 200. So some college even bigger, like 200 to 300 per person. So then you really don't have energy or time can provide very detailed service to each one. Which yeah. one do you prefer with the functional area or the getting to know students really well? I really cherish the moment at ECNU because I have so close relation with them through the four years and I know like their whole stories like in that four years so especially when they graduate that the moment you feel very very fulfilled because these kids are just like your child you witness their growing up through that four years but like for other side like I think it's good at American University because like you will definitely know your interests and then you can like specialize on certain area and then you can uh, fully develop like all your like talents or abilities on certain area. Judy yeah. what's in your portfolio here at NYU Shanghai? So currently I oversee the uh, student uh, mobility team and also the new student program and the diversity program. Okay. Yeah. And then starting in the fall, you'll also be taking over a couple new areas? Yes, like residential life and uh, student involvement team. Excellent. David, how did you make your way over here? So I um, originally worked at NYU um, prior to um, coming to Shanghai. And so I've been with NYU for the last 14 years, um, eight years in uh, New York and now um, going into year six in Shanghai. Um, I also did my master's um, at uh, NYU. I think for me, the journey was really both a personal and professional one. I am a Chinese-born um, American, um, and so I was born and raised in LA, never stepped foot into China um, prior to um, moving here in 2012, and that was really the, the, a point of disconnect for me in terms of my own identity development. 
I felt like there was an aspect of the Chinese um, identity that I just couldn't grasp or understand fully um, and that I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity where I could use my background um, and my upbringing within the context of working at an American university and, maintain, and continuing with my pursuits of working in higher education and building NYU Shanghai. And so um, when the opportunity presented itself, it was um, somewhat of a great match personally and professionally um, in that context. And so I've gone to see and witness kind of thinking differently um, about the work that we do, um, not necessarily applying a Western approach um, in every regard and not constantly applying a Chinese approach in every regard, but really looking at situations and looking at what the best needs are um, for building a unique double identity type of university here. Can you talk a little bit more about the double identity and what you mean by that? So NYU Shanghai is both accredited by the Middle States Association um, and students will graduate with an NYU degree. We are also um, recognized by the Ministry of Education as a Chinese university and so students will also graduate with a Chinese university degree which allows for both international and Chinese students to reap benefits of both um, and so they're able to um, take full advantage of opportunities that might present itself, whether it's future employment, whether it's future graduate school, um, by having these two degrees. With that is also the constant um, wonderful juggling of the rules, laws, customs of both um, countries. For example, in the U.S., um, we in China, we still have to maintain FERPA um, and HIPAA. We comply with Title IX and everything that's within the federal regulations um, of the U.S. context. And then within China, um, we have to comply with how we administer um, the management of international students, um, Chinese students. For example, um, most recently, um, we just actually completed the Chinese student military training, which is a 10-day, um, condensed, comprehensive program that has to take place for um, the Chinese students um, in order to receive their um, degree. And so um, it, it's, uh, it's something that we've done every single year um, at the end of their freshman year, um, which actually in turn allows for them to bond and develop uh, further relationships because now they've spent a whole entire year immersed in this multicultural environment. And then we take them for these 10 days where while it's uh, um, physically, it's this military training piece, uh, emotionally, um, it's really processing this year that they've spent in this environment and realizing what their next goals are for uh, moving forward at the university. So I think that it's uh, one of those unique experiences um, that we've been able to see through this double identity. So let's dig into student conduct a little bit as that double identity kind of rears its head in both positive and challenging ways. Um, you mentioned FERPA as something to comply with here in China, but also obviously it's not a Chinese law. So can you talk about the intersection between the expectations of students and parents with their privacy when it comes to student conduct? Yeah, so um, I think at the beginning, like we did receive several phone calls from Chinese parents because they want to understand like how their kids are at school, like regarding with their academic performance or their daily performance. Because like in China, like we don't have that kind of like regulation. So parents usually get those information easily from the school. And like in the past like 10 or 12 years, they already get used to this model. So when they send their kids to NYU Shanghai, so they expect it, they can still get that kind of like records from the university. But then we told them no, like according to the US law, like we cannot let them know. I think at the beginning, 
parents just don't understand. But like after our explanation, like they really they appreciate like our philosophy here, and they think it's really、uh, good for their、uh, kids. Like we really care about their kids,、uh, so they began to change. And also some interesting example is. Um, some parents like even became the advocator of our school and to promote us like at different occasions. And I learned like one of our students' parent who is a professor in a local Chinese university, like he also utilized what he learned from his daughter and began to utilize these like、uh, strategies or those way、uh, methods like in his own class at a Chinese university. Yeah, I think it's important to really put ourselves in a context in which it's not normal practice. But when you do speak with students, you kind of check in with them. You're like, how do you want to handle the situation?、Um, you know, you understand the cultural context that parents are heavily involved in a very different way, and so checking in with them first and saying, you know, how do you want if we get a reach outreach from your parents, or how do you want this to be handled? Do you want to meet with them separately? Do you want to meet them with them together? Do you want us to have no contact with them? And really setting those expectations、um, very much at the beginning,、um, because sometimes they will feel the pressure from their parents to be where where they need to be involved, and sometimes they don't want that, and we. Seen those cases where there are some instances in which students are passing things on to their parents, and we're like, no, you kind of have to deal with it yourself, and this is part of you, your issue.、Um, but we've also had other cases in which students have said, you know, I really don't want my parents to know any of this piece and stuff, and I want to deal with this、um, as on my own,、um, and respecting them in that context as long as there's no risk at, involved in the situation. One of the things that I'm constantly thinking about is、uh, with with domestic students as well as social capital and the student conduct process, how students and systems can be advantaged by identity、um, or disadvantaged by identity. And one of the things I think about for your context specifically is the dossier. In the U.S., we don't have student dossiers.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, Judy, I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about what it is、mm-hmm. and then how student discipline can impact that. Document. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So、uh, all the Chinese students will have a dossier, so which basically have their educational records since primary school and through their middle school, high school, and then the university records. So when they graduate from university, that that、uh, dossier、uh, will be given to their future employer. So if they don't have an employer or if they don't have any domestic like employer, that will be kept at their com. Community government. So,、uh, each community government will have some sort of office to keep those like dossier.、Uh, so this is、um, something like basically you can find like almost every information about this person like throughout the whole life. So、um, it's very interesting. Like even until today, like the dossier is still like. The actual fire have all the papers, and you are not allowed to have any any like e copy of that. So all the things are actual file, and student cannot take the file with them by them all. Themselves, like we have to transfer those dossier, like between those organizations, but through a certain dossier, like delivery services. So that's owned by the government. To nowadays, like many Chinese university, when they handle those, ah,、uh, student dossiers, um. 
I would say most of them they would prefer just to put the honorum like or awards. Uh, like those records into student dossier rather than those disciplinary records, mm-hmm. but like they do have some law requirement. So what kind of disciplinary um, subsequent uh, what's that consequence mm-hmm. if they received, uh, they have to put into uh, student dossier. But luckily, like for NYU Shanghai, like so far we didn't meet with any cases like which required by the law like have to be put into student dossier. What types of cases? By- Law would have to go into the student dossier. Mm-hmm. So usually, like if students got dismissal by the university, or if the students made something really uh, serious, uh, some really se- uh, how to say like serious activities that disobey of the law, or sometimes if they already have the ju- uh, jurisdiction, a uh, jurisdictional. Um, of punishment from the law system, like these are things like you have to put into mm-hmm. student dossier. So in the U.S., if a student mm-hmm. commits a crime mm-hmm. or is dismissed yeah. from the university, we may notate the transcript. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely put it in their student conduct file, but mm-hmm. we're not forwarding that to an employer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think about equity in the process in a place mm-hmm. like NYU Shanghai, mm-hmm. where the Chinese students maybe more significantly disadvantaged mm-hmm. um, by having to place something like that in their dossier, which then goes forward to employment. Mm-hmm. How do you think about and manage the equity between the nationalities mm-hmm. of students here and when you think mm-hmm. about impact? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's the, the same context, you know, generally it's at a level that's severe enough that would have that impact. I mean, I think the difference for the U.S. context, and I could be wrong again, is that in the U.S., depending upon the types of jobs you're applying for, you would have to ch- uh, admit or check a box that says, you know, I have f- um, committed a crime or um, I've been found responsible or guilty for X action. Um, and so I think that in many ways within that context, the I would say that the U.S. still does have something. For example, mm-hmm. if someone even um, had did something in undergrad, but then is now applying for graduate studies and wanted to take out a loan, they may not be eligible for federal loans because of whatever legal action that they had there. So I would say that sometimes the penalties in the U.S. context actually might sometimes be much more severe than what I've seen in the the Chinese context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think here. It's also looking at the level of the offense and to the degree within that, and and I would say that most of the times, you know, most of the cases that we do see of any sort of disciplinary behavioral issues, for the most part, do come from our international students more so than from the Chinese students, and a lot of that is, I would say, a, a cultural upbringing that you know the students have had, and for the instances that we've had with. Our Chinese students generally, it's it's to an extreme. You know, some of the cases would be something in which um, is very small, and, and in that regard, so I would say that that's where the equity piece comes into play. And just luckily, hopefully, that we'll never have to put anything in someone's <laughs> yeah. dossier um, indicating yeah. any of that piece. How do our policies here at NYU Shanghai compare to what you might see for disciplinary policies at a local Chinese university? I think I talked about this with uh, David Pei, like um, when we begin to start this school, is so a traditional way in most of the Chinese university is, uh, so we will announce this instance publicly, including the student's name or maybe school ID, like at the school level. So 
then the student will feel embarrassed. So it, it seems like a way when like we when we have some disciplinary uh, process, usually like you don't need to take any action afterwards. When you just make that announcement, the students who violate the school uh, like regulations, they will feel very embarrassed, and then they will begin to learn from that, and then they will try to avoid that in the future. So. This is very different when I like firstly begin to work at NYU Shanghai because here we can never never do that. Like all the conversation are private, and especially when you deal with the specific incident, like you have to make sure like the both parties like they all have private talk like with the staff, or like even sometimes you want them to be confront with each other. You still need to get their agreement beforehand.、Um, so I feel this part is very different.、Um, But for Chinese university, like that part is really like work, like at the most cases.、Uh, but here, like, but here we did meet with some kind of. I I remember like one year during the military training, then Chinese students who were very unhappy about what the school did.、Mm-hmm. It's because there was an incident happening in front of many students.、Mm-hmm. So then. Because due to our student conduct policy, it has to be private. So the school actually did a lot, like, like um to、uh, in that process. But the rest of the Chinese student they didn't see it because all the talk private, all the like process are not announced to the public. So then students are thinking were thinking like the university didn't take any action、mm. for that instant. So later they begin to claim on that, and they think the student life is doing nothing. So that's a、uh, the like the gap like between the Chinese context like and the student conduct policy here sometimes. So you're having to reset some expectations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have to re-emphasize on like the student conduct policy is private that. We cannot like to make it public.、Uh, we have to、uh, keep it private. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the emphasis on the our 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 approach is generally with the Western approach is on、um, the behavioral piece, and so the learning around it, and so sitting down with the student to review and process through and reflect and think through their actions. Um, in hopes that they don't repeat that、uh, behavior again in the future for for、um, whatever reason, and I think that within the Chinese context,、um, it's role modeling. It's kind of beha- it's like action、mm-hmm. by role modeling. So it's kind of a while it's public in many while we may view it as public shaming in many ways, it's to try to、um, you know they use the word mo fang,、uh, um, which is to not let it repeat and happen、mm-hmm. again. So they they use it as a case study essentially、mm-hmm. of telling people. This type of incident happen, and we wouldn't want to see this happen again、yeah. to anybody else. And so let's avoid that because oftentimes those behavioral actions are not necessarily so nuanced to the individual behavior, and it's more of a, 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 from the mindset of how do we help the larger masses of students avoid this issue. 
even though this person gets singled out. So it's interesting to think about that. I'm always curious if we were able to remove names, which oftentimes is hard to a small place like and, um, the campus here with only 1,200 students. I think that if we were at a big, large university, and maybe that's why it works at a large university and we wouldn't consider doing it here, does that actually have an impact? So if we did this in the States somewhere at a large university where we were able to use these as case study examples for people to say X situation happened um, and this is the reason why and this is kind of what happened, does that start to get people to think differently about their behaviors because it, they, they, they now know and are more aware? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting um, debate that I think we constantly will continue, have to keep continue at it. That's fascinating. It's uh, kind of an interesting hybrid of the cultures in some ways. And, you know, there are American universities that do like annual reports or semester reports that say here was the offense or the violation and here was the consequence and they publish those for their entire university communities and some of those schools are you know not super large mm-hmm. um, so it does happen without the names and when you remove the names and mm-hmm. the identifiable context it becomes FERPA protected again mm-hmm. or sorry FERPA compliant rather not mm-hmm. protected um, I think you know something to have further discussions on for sure but I'm, I'm super fascinated by how do we kind of abandon an entirely Western um, student conduct lens because that's really what we've we've approached the process here as mm-hmm. um, kind of from the beginning and to kind of reset that cultural context from, you know, publicly calling out a student is not necessarily shame-based or loss of face-based, mm-hmm. but also a collectivist learning opportunity. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge for us is because of the fact that we are part of the NYU degree mm-hmm. granting system, what we don't, what, and similar to kind of the way we decided on the, the actual physical structure of student life or student affairs here, was so that when a student shows up in New York or at one of the other sites, that their experience is going to be the same as the New York students um, and the Abu Dhabi students. And so Shanghai did this other method so completely off um, how would that actually translate for students who I think get more confused why is it that I could get away with certain things if I showed up in London and did the same thing because we were not doing it in Shanghai so I think we did have to adopt and this is an example um, in which we had to adopt a more Western approach to things while still having to take into consideration how we might um, need to think it through within a Chinese context. So I think most of the listeners are going to be fairly unfamiliar with the NYU global campus model can you describe that? So NYU um, has three degree granting campuses, New York, Abu Dhabi, and Shanghai, um, where students are admitted to those three separate campuses. And then the students will have a chance to study at our other academic centers in different locations, London, Prague, Berlin, Florence, Tel Aviv, Sydney, Accra, Buenos Aires, Madrid. Washington, D.C. Paris. Paris. And so as they circulate through um, the, the, the system, um, you know, they're upheld, to, uh, they have to uphold all the NYU standards and the policies and procedures. Um, and while things may have some variances to it, it's still pretty much the same philosophy and the same approach. And so therefore, you know, to make it a, a, a more seamless um, navigation and circulation of the system, um, they really, we, we really needed to adopt, you know, standard NYU um, practices um, in that regards. So in, in terms of standard practices, you know, all of the 14 NYU locations, because they're all accredited through middle states, 
all abide by Title IX as well. So even though Title IX is a U.S.-based law, mm-hmm. I think it's been an interesting challenge um, to navigate here in China because mm-hmm. the local laws were different. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was just put on the books officially in 2015 that sexual assault on a man was now a crime before it was just a regular assault charge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and domestic violence is looked at differently. Inter-partner, mm-hmm. Intermittent partner relationship violence is looked at much differently. Stalking is not always yeah. a law on the books. So, Judy, you've had this very difficult task of being the student liaison mm-hmm. to the Title IX processes in the U.S. So mm-hmm. how have you navigated those challenges and those differences and what looks the same, what looks different? Mm-hmm. I think when we learned from NYU New York campus about the Title IX and because they're offering students the local resource guidebook and we want to create one for Shanghai students as well. Um, but when we go through uh, those local resources, then we found there's a very uh, huge difference like in the um, uh, law um, re- resources. It's because here, like uh, not like the US, like first, like if it's a sexual assault, like first you can go to those like rape crisis center to collect evidence first and then those evidence will be kept for a certain time and you can utilize that time to determine like whether you want to uh, ask for the law like resources or you don't want to do it but here um, like there's no like you have to start you have to file an official police report first and then like the evidence can be collected and then um, but like once you fire the police report you can never withdraw mm-hmm. so like that is something we think will prevent uh, from um, our students reporting mm-hmm. uh, on the sexual assault because I think I would assume like students will be uh, will feel very scared like if they know like they have to file a police report and they won't have chance to withdraw or pause if they don't want to pursue in the end um, so that can be something very challenging to us um, but I think at the end like we we just told our students they are always welcome to us like to consult and so then we can help them to navigate the local like the the resources yeah this is something hard and also uh, another part is about the relationship of violence. So we did have an incident between two Chinese students because it seems in Chinese context those relationship violence are not recognized as violence. Mm-hmm. They think it's a very standard or normal or sometimes even they think it's a sweet relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in that case, like the boy in that relationship is very dominant so he like require the girl cannot talk with any other male or even he want to control like what the girl is gonna wear like every day like from very detailed stuff and to very big stuff mm-hmm. so the boy just want to control everything so from the western perspective it's definitely like a relationship violence but in the chinese context it's not that serious uh, so even like some students even some Chinese people may think 
it's very sweet relationship because that shows like how important you are to that boy and like how the boy like treasure you you so that's uh different like very different so when we try to handle with that case i think we because it seems like the the western student who noticed this report to us not the Chinese students themselves, and then we have to intervene. So, but during the talk, we found it's very hard to to help them to understand it's not a right way as a relationship, and also like for the、uh, common friends between the boy and the girl, like those friends are not thinking it's wrong. They also think it's 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 okay. They don't view it. Um, wrong. So that's also challenging to us, especially like when we try to educate our freshmen or our、uh, new students.、Uh, we also found there seems a big gap between Chinese and like the、uh, U.S. students. So we are trying to also like it's hard for us to find a balanced way to to educate them、um, from different perspectives. Yeah, I would say that it is extremely challenging because of the fact that you know you are operating within that cultural context. That if the individuals themselves aren't aware of this potentially being violence or harm to themselves,、um, to get them to that point to to accept that this isn't right is a question of whether or not is it again or imposing of again Western values and a, a, an approach rather than really trying to sit down and meet the students where they're at、um, in that sense and so. It is a hard piece to navigate because we're constantly、um, needing to really try to ingrain and instill the core concepts. And one of the challenges that I notice from from someone、um, from a Western perspective is, you know, here they want the if this then that,、um, very dualistic in in the dis in. In the approach, meaning that if so, you're telling me if I slap this person, then that is considered domestic violence, and if so, what are the consequences that come from that? And so it's this logical processing aspect of things, and then is it a okay as long as I don't do it on campus, as long as it's not happening here? And so it's hard to get people to get to that. Personal value acceptance point in which they realize that as an individual in the society, this is just a behavior that shouldn't happen, and therefore I'm not going to do it, and therefore I'm going to get my peers and other people to realize that this is something that we shouldn't be doing,、um, regardless of whether or not we've seen this on television, whether or not we've seen this in our own family upbringings, whether we've seen this within other family situations, and I think that that awareness is why in the most I would say in the last. Few years, laws have been changing, and things have been increasing to protect victims of assault. Whereas you may not have seen that、um, earlier on. I think that it's there. There is a larger movement of people、um, really taking in、um, and reporting and saying that I'm in a, a situation that I don't feel safe in because of the change in. The culture, and I think that that's something where you're going to continue seeing a lot of progress in China that I'm personally excited about,、uh, because again, when I first started in 2012, you know, certain laws weren't in place yet, and now they are, and so slowly, I feel like there is area where we're able to bridge. But again, we're operating off of the fact that if it's 
you know, again, Title IX, not needing to go into depth. If it's our students, then we're going to deal with it in terms of what the university can do in hopes that they can then carry this on to life afterwards and that that's just something that we, we hope will, will be a big change, but we never know. But at least the university is, a, is working hard at educating this new group of students um, around it. Thank you for tackling those really challenging issues. I, th- I think it's always that question that you're asking yourselves about, are we imposing Western values? Are we illuminating an existing problem? It's a, it's a really hard thing to examine. And I think only folks who have really great understandings of both cultural contexts can even begin to answer that question. Um, and, and I think it's hard for those of us who are on one cultural side of that fence or the other, for sure. Um, But let's shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you both, what advice would you give student conduct officers that are in North America, because our our audience is primarily U.S. and Canada, what advice would you give them when they are working with students from a Chinese cultural context in the student conduct process? I would say that um, really spending that first part of the conversation um, reflecting on goals and aspirations and getting to know the student and what they're hoping to get out of that experience. Oftentimes they may not have reflected enough on that purpose um, because the original um, goal was just to really get themselves out of China's educational structure into a more Western structure because of how that's been portrayed. Um, you know, I think that's been the interesting part of being at NYU Shanghai is seeing that we have um, where we are changing the landscape of viewpoints of education, um, and that other universities are starting to adopt similar practices, similar structures within their teaching. In that sense, and so I think that really just spending time first getting to know why they chose to come to the U.S. to study, what they hope to get out of that experience, getting to understand, you know, what their perspective is. And so making sure that you're not just jumping straight into a, okay, so you violated this policy and therefore we're having this conversation and now this is your sanction. You know, really spending time to say, okay, so how does this fit into your goals? Um, what are you hoping to, to do? Where is this content, this perspective? Help me as someone who's not from your country and from your perspective understand why you might have taken this sort of action. So really rethinking our questions and our approach and how much we spend our time in, especially when you're dealing with someone who's not within your own personal cultural context. Um, from my previous interaction with Chinese students is because uh, sometimes like I will f- uh, feel like they are very f- uh, feared or they are very scared when they were asking to a like um, student conduct process because in their philosophy they think it's a punishment thing. Mm-hmm. So usually, like even I didn't begin to ask their questions, they will just ask me like, what will be the consequence? What will be the punishment? So they are not focused on the process or the incident, but they just very curious about the punishment. So I feel like you have to let them know, no, like here, we are not punishing you. Uh, We are just to help you to understand like what and help you to grow. And I think it's just because like the Chinese structures the things, so they just have those kind of assumption like all the student conduct process is to punish people. So I feel this is my advice 
um, probability just to emphasize on the education and the、mm-hmm. students' growth, but not like、uh, the punishment and、like, consequence.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very quickly, I'd also like to touch on Chinese names.、Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a challenge, I think, for、uh, anyone who's a native English speaker with pronunciation.、Mm-hmm. I personally believe there's, you know, so much value behind a name、mm-hmm. and saying someone's name properly.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also understand that most Chinese names come with a tremendous amount of intention and value compared、mm-hmm. to how most Western families name their children.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you give any quick tips or help for? English-speaking administrators as they work on the pronunciation of、mm-hmm. Chinese names、um, and anything else that you want to say about that.、Mm-hmm. I would just say to keep trying、um, and to make it clear to them that when you're interacting with them, that you want to know their names and you want to work at it. So that effort definitely is something that they will appreciate. That that you're constantly saying, okay, let's go there.、Um, you know, remind me again. You know, I, I'm going to get this right. So really, just getting yourself hopefully to that point, and then at some point, you know, like doing some practice. You know, going back and saying, okay, this person's name is definitely harder for me to try to remember than you know the typical John and Dave and Davids and Jennifers. So how do I try to enunciate and try to get this? And you know, can I add, can you record? I'm going to. You know, with our phones now, you can, and I actually did this for commencement,、um, so that we can try to、uh, pronounce their names correctly for for the deans. We took out the voice recorder、uh, memos feature of our phones and just asked them to say, "Can you just say your name?" And then I used that as clips, sound clips for them to practice the name, so that they could hear it over and over again. And the deans did an amazing job at being able to hit the tones、um, when they because they were hearing it all the time. I would say the one thing to not do is get frustrated to the point where you're like, you know. Do you have like an English name that I can go by and assume that you know? I think that there was always an assumption, and it's hard because a lot of students feel like they need to pick an English name to make it easy for for、uh, you know foreigners to to try to.、Um, Pronounce your name, but if some people really prefer that their name and their identity is their Chinese given name, then we shouldn't impose this expectation that they have then an English name、um, to go along with with it, and and that that's how we want to to refer to them by. Thank you. Any final thoughts for the listeners?、Um, Again, you know, I think if you ever have questions or you're looking for someone to bounce ideas with or try to process a situation, we're more than welcome to、um, be in touch. You could always look on the Shanghai website for our contact information.、Um, but、um, quickly, my email is dp nine four nine at nyu.edu. Mine is hl five zero at nyu.edu. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or email us at ASCA Podcast at gmail dot com. That's ASCA P O D C A S T at gmail dot com. Thank you so much, David and Judy, for sharing your viewpoints. Thank you. You're welcome. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Patience Bryant. Patience is a track coordinator for the Donald D. Gehring Academy, where she focuses on conflict resolution and has her PhD in conflict resolution. I hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton. That's me. Produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards, and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com.